Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1 verse 7 reads these familiar words. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Father, tonight we seek wisdom. We seek wisdom to understand your wisdom. We know that all knowledge, all truth is your truth. All wisdom is from you. And so we go to you tonight asking share with us. Out of your kindness, share with us, we pray. Amen. Well, you probably don't know the name, but William French Anderson is one of the most famous geneticists in the world. He's a two-time Harvard graduate, a Cambridge graduate, and is responsible for the innovative form of medicine called gene therapy. My first thought was, so we changed the blue gene? All right, that's interesting. That's not what it is. Gene therapy, I think, is a method of delivering medicine on the cellular level. I don't know. Whatever it is. He's smart. That's what you need to know for the illustration. As a physician, as a geneticist, as a molecular biologist, I think we would agree that he is smart, right? If you have all three of those adjectives before your name, you're a smart, smart person. But in July of 2006, this world-famous geneticist was convicted of child molestation. And in a press conference, his attorney said, nothing about having an IQ of 176 means that you have good judgment. Just because a man is brilliant doesn't mean that he has wisdom. There's a difference in knowledge, knowing things, and being wise. And tonight, we are going to think about this biblical theme of wisdom. It is not just a self-contained small topic, but broad and spans throughout the scriptures. Now, just a few weeks ago, we focused on the wisdom of God. So these are obviously related, and obviously God's wisdom and his omniscience will certainly be in view tonight, but we're going to focus primarily on how this pertains to human wisdom. How it is that we can be wise. As I said, wisdom is a major theme in the Bible. You're probably well familiar with that. There are many interrelated terms and words and concepts and metaphors and images that, that, that flow together. But the big picture is that in the Bible, wisdom is an approach. It's, it's, a, it's a way to try to make sense of reality. It is an approach to making sense of reality. It's a quest for understanding. It's an attempt to master the skill of living in our world. I think a good way to think about wisdom is that it is for someone who, someone who is wise is good at life. They're good at living. You may know lots about genetics, 
or Tennessee football or theology or essential oils or whatever. But if you molest children, you're not good at life, right? Wisdom, wise living is a big question. It it has entertained philosophers and theologians and all humanity for all of time, I suppose. The Bible even has a whole genre of literature that we call wisdom literature, which makes this perhaps a little more confusing as we think about this. And it's largely about this question, how can we live well in God's world? That's what wisdom is after. How can we live wisely in God's world? Now, the category of wisdom in the Bible is big and broad, but I think we could maybe oversimplify it, which is, I think, what good preaching often does. <laughs> oversimplify it into two broad senses, right? There's a, there's a practical wisdom. The Bible does talk about wisdom that's related to having skill, right? Nathan has guitar wisdom, is the way the Bible would maybe describe it. Uh, there's an aspect, an aspect of wisdom that's often neglected. The Bible talks about God giving humans wisdom to perform particular endeavors. Listen, listen to this one example in Exodus 28. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Did you catch that? That's sowing wisdom, knitting wisdom. I didn't get none of that right? There are many examples. God gives wisdom to build, to play musical instruments, to do art, even to gather wealth. He gives wisdoms to rule and to judge. So be careful, friends. Don't, all of you who are honing skills, and we all are, don't fall into the trap, the arrogant trap of thinking that you're practice or your study or your experience or your your individual genius is derived from yourself. And as we will soon see, it is wisdom. All wisdom comes from God. All of it. But this is practical wisdom. But there's another sense of wisdom that we probably think of more frequently, and that's moral wisdom. Right? It's a category that describes those who have developed the skill of moral living. We could think of this wisdom as the kind of wisdom that lives a life according to God's way. Living life according to God's way. But that, of course, brings us to a big question. Not just what kinds of wisdom are there, but where does it come from? In the Bible, where does it come from? Well, there are many places in the scripture that allude or well, state that wisdom is very closely connected to creation. That, that wisdom was actually present at, at creation. Here's one example. Uh, you can flip over Proverbs 3. Since you're a page away or three taps away. Proverbs 3 verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, a synonym, He established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down like dew. Verse 19. Or or in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom, which is often has a a voice, is personified. It takes up and says, when he established the earth or the heavens, I, wisdom, verse 27, was there. 
He goes on to say, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was beside him like a master workman. I, that's wisdom again, was his daily delight, rejoicing before him always. Do you see that? Wisdom is like dancing at creation. <laughs> Helping, like cooperating. Like, it's like a child like trying to help. Wisdom was present before creation. We could say perhaps outside of creation. Again, in Proverbs 8, the scripture said, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. So we see that wisdom is closely related to God's creative activity, which means it's closely related to God, right? Wisdom is not self-contained. It's not like some other thing out there, separate from God. It is established by God. I think we could say wisdom is created by God, though my smarter theologian friends would probably help me phrase that better. But friends, this is really important, and it's really practical for us. You need to know wisdom precedes you, right? It, it exists outside of you. Not in you. You don't look within your heart to find it, right? You don't conjure up all your cognitive abilities. It precedes you because wisdom preceded the world. Because wisdom originated and is founded in God because God is the only, God is the original source of wisdom. You want to know where wisdom started? You got to go to God. It started in him. Which means that the only true source of wisdom the only wisdom that exists that is available to any moral creature originates and comes from God. I think we could say all wisdom is either God's wisdom or it's a lie. It's fake wisdom. It's bad wisdom. That, that doesn't exist, does it? Right? It's not wisdom. Just the other day I was uh, looking on... Haley, don't listen for a second. Uh, I was looking on eBay for a new weightlifting belt. And I won't go into the details, but in, in weightlifting, having a really high quality leather, thick, four inch, 10 millimeter belt is really, it's really important, right? And the quality of the materials really matters. So my Velcro nylon one won't work much longer. And, and, and there are several, this is like a thing that's actually still manufactured in America because the quality matters so much. There's several American companies that, that are the standard for weightlifting belts and all of them make their belts in the U.S. But they're, they're kind of expensive, all right? They're like a hundred bucks. And so I was looking, some are more, uh, but so I was looking. The, I was looking the other day on eBay, and uh, I found the, like the brand that I was looking at. This it was clearly this brand, all leather belt made by Dominion Strength, which is like a really reputable belt company. It's American, and it was like thirty five bucks. And I was like zooming in. I was like looking at. It. I was like, there's a little rust around the rivets. That's no big deal, right? Like these are lifetime kind of purchases. Lifetime purchases, right? And I was about to pull the trigger on this $35 leather belt, which I don't think was going to fit me, until I saw the small sticker that said, made in Pakistan, right? Yeah. It, 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 I knew immediately then it was, it was fake, right? 
And it looked like a genuine belt. It, it was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was real leather, but it didn't originate from the right place. Right? And that's what's really important about belts. Like, I knew that Dominion Strength is in Scottsdale, Arizona. And if this belt didn't come from Scottsdale, it is not genuine. Now, there are other secondhand genuine Dominion Strength belts on eBay. And they cost what Dominion Strength belts cost, right? Because they're genuine. That, that's how you know it's genuine. You see, the same is true for wisdom. All wisdom is God's wisdom, which means it has to come from him, not Pakistan, right? Or Arizona for that matter, right? It, it, it comes from him. Now, it may be passed down and you may have access to it secondhand. We could talk about that later, right? You can learn wisdom as a person who doesn't know God from your parents, but primarily it's got to come from the source, and there's, I think, another important foundational lesson for us here. We, we've seen that there's this close relationship with creation and wisdom, right? That it was by wisdom, and it is with wisdom that God created the world. But that means that if we are to look at the world, we can discern how God made the world. Here's what that means, all right? Since God is the creator, there is a clear design to the world. You can tell a difference when my wife cleans up our playroom and when my toddler cleans up our playroom, right? You can tell. One results in order. One results in chaos, right? It's like, did he undo the mess and make it like mess squared or something? Like, what did he do? Like, why are we even trying to, right? But when God made the world, he built it with order, and it is wisdom that he, it is by wisdom that he built this order, right? So gravity, the, the laws of thermodynamics, the tastiness of sugar, right? The untastiness of kale. I'm kidding, right? Belt, belt. All right, all of that appoints us, it points us to a designer, an intelligent, wise designer. God made the world and he is orderly. So we can look at the world and we can see order and we can expect things to work in an orderly way. The same, here's the thing, okay? The same thing applies to the moral order of the world. Since God is righteous, there is a moral order. There are moral patterns. God has created the world not only with laws of thermodynamics, but he's created the world with moral patterns. So here's the thing. Here's what wisdom does. Wisdom looks for the moral patterns. Wisdom looks for the moral laws of thermodynamics, right? Whatever the equivalent is. And it aligns itself accordingly. Wisdom seeks to discern the patterns by which God has created the world. It says, okay, I believe there's a God. I believe that he created an orderly world. And so I want to align my life with God's good order, his created order. Which means, so this is completely opposite to humanism, right? Which is like the essence of the American spirit, right? It's, it's very different, which means that if you want to be wise, you must view and live in a world in a way that acknowledges that Yahweh is the creator and he has ordered the world according to his purposes. So your plan, who cares, right? If it doesn't align with God's wisdom, it's chaos. 
Imagine that you are a world-class French horn player. Any French horn players in here? Right? Imagine, I don't know, it's French horn. It's, you know, right? And you're invited to play with the Philadelphia Philharmonic Symphony. And they are going to play, you are told, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Dun, 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 dun. Right? If you, okay, you with me? And so you take your French horn, and as soon as the piece starts, right, all the pieces, are all, all the musicians are starting, and as soon as you hear dun-dun-dun-dun, do you know what you play? We all live in a yellow submarine. A yellow, it's like, complete, like completely the wrong tune. Everyone else is playing Beethoven's Fifth, and you're playing the Beatles. Is that wise? Right? Like, I mean, how do you think as a musician that would go for you? Do you think you would be invited back? Do you think that you would survive the, like, the second measure of the song? No, right? Of course not. We can think of wisdom as playing along with God's tune. It is recognizing that God has a symphony. He has selected the melody. He has selected the tempo. He has selected the key. You don't get to adjust the key. Right? You musicians can understand, if you've ever heard two musicians playing in the different keys at the same time, it is awful. You can play the same, same melodies in the wrong key, it sounds awful. Friends, that is how life is. We don't get to select our own key. We don't get to do our own thing. We don't get to make our own way. No matter how great you think it sounds, my kids make up music, it's awful. It's hilarious. Like we, we, like I don't even, I don't even, know, I don't even know how to describe it to you. It's just like two notes, <laughs> and it's just like repeated. They, tr- I think that started. They tried. Roman was trying to sing Amazing Grace, but he only at the time could like make two grunts, and so he would like to do two grunts, and now all the kids do two grunts at dinner, and we're just like, what's going on here, right? Like that's what our music is like. So we need to align our lives with God's symphony. He is the conductor. Now, this is why we can make sense of, this is how we can make sense of so many of the Proverbs. If you'll notice, a big chunk of the book of Proverbs, like, like chapters 10, 10 through 31, or I don't know, 8 through 31, like there's this kind of discernible portion where they're really full of like practical wisdom, like life lessons, like that the public school would probably be okay teaching some of them, all right? It's just really, it's really practical. And what it is, is these are patterns that God has baked into the world, that he is embedded in his creation. Now, they're not hard and fast rules, but they are patterns that describe how life typically works, right? So, for example, train up a child and the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Have we not all seen a godly parent have a child wander away and never come back, right? That is not a promise to godly parents that they will absolutely have godly children. But what it does reveal is that the common pattern in God's world is that godly parents tend to produce godly children, right? That's how it works. Another example, quickly, a slack hand, Proverbs 10, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Does that guarantee riches for the diligent? No, right? The same thing. But can we not see that God has created the world in such a way to correlate diligence with riches? Right? We see how this works. 
So we need to understand that much of the Bible's wisdom, particularly the wisdom literature, it's not necessarily a mechanical process, right? Like the book of Job is the best example of this. I had to cut so much of this out, and I'm still long, but, right? Think about this pattern. We'll see here in a minute that the Bible teaches wisdom leads to life. Well, Job was like, uh, I'm not, not seeing the life, right? I'm not seeing the life, God. I'm living wise. It's not working for me. In fact, I see all the wicked. They get life, and I'm over here with boils and, and a bunch of carcasses, Right? He says, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do good people suffer? This seems to fly in the face of God's pattern for the world. That like wisdom leads to life. We'll see in a minute. But as the book, as the ending of Job shows us, God's rule and God's wisdom cannot be boiled down to little sayings and little formulas and little you know, laws. His ways are higher. His wisdom is wiser than your wisdom, right? We also see this really clear pattern in the Bible. I've talked about this recently, uh, but this binary pattern. There's either wisdom or there's foolishness. Wisdom or folly, right? You kind of fall in one of the two categories biblically. There's our approach is either right or it's wrong, If you're going to play a symphony with an orchestra, even though there are other keys, other tempos, other interpretations of a piece, you're either right or you're wrong, depending on how the conductor is like leading the orchestra, right? You're either in the right key or the wrong key. That that part is not open to interpretation. And that's how the Bible sometimes presents the path of wisdom. As we've seen recently, there are only two ways to live. You're either on the road to heaven or the road to hell, the road to life, the road to death. All other paths other than the Lord's are the wrong path. This is, there's a way of wisdom and there's a way of folly. Proverbs 8 and 9, those two chapters are, are, are really like the essence of like seeing this dynamic going back and forth. And it's, they're comparing the path of wisdom, the way of wisdom, and the way of folly. And it's really cl- critical to note where each path ends. If you, Proverbs 8, 35 says this, wisdom speaking, whoever finds me finds life. You hear that, friends? Whoever finds wisdom finds life. And obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. And all who hate me love death. Alright, so here's the pattern I was referring to. We could see it, we could find it again and again in the Bible. Wisdom results in life. Foolishness results in death. Wisdom, which is expressed in attitudes and actions and words and values that please God, will always lead to life, while folly, which is any deviation from God's plan, any deviation at all, will lead to death. Now, I think it's easy for us, particularly as church people, right, I've got a, I'm a card-carrying church person, right, um, I think it's easy for us to let these familiar images become so dull, right? They just kind of like, oh yeah, life. <laughs> Wisdom leads to life. Yeah, I knew that. Tell me something I don't know, preacher, right? And we miss the effect it's to have. I mean, 
Right? Like, think about how extravagant this promise is. The promise of wisdom is life. Wisdom promises what every single person in this room wants. Wisdom promises to give you what every single person looking at me wants, and that is life. Full, rich happiness, right? The good life, the way God designed it, like Eden, Eden's life. Life as God designed it. That's the way the scriptures, that's why they say blessed is the one who finds wisdom, right? Happy is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. The more you get wisdom, the more you align your life with the patterns and values that God has built into the world, the happier you will be. Now there's the Job problem. We'll talk about that. But, but you see that. There is life at the end of wisdom. This is why I think wisdom is compared to money so much in the Proverbs. Probably also because Solomon was writing some of them and that's like all he knew. Money and girls, right? And, and he, couldn't, he couldn't have done the girl thing. That would have been awkward. Uh, so he, Proverbs 3, he says, For the gain from her, wisdom, is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. I, I think wisdom is compared to money because it's the ultimate currency. Like it's valuable in any circumstance. Right, so if you don't understand basic economics... I guess probably like me. Like we, we, you can understand this, right? We've all read about books or seen movies or whatever about cultures or time periods where the economy didn't have like a paper currency. It was based on trade, right? So if uh, you had a lot of potatoes and you, like that's great until you need medicine, Right? You like rub the potato on your, your arms and like not getting better. Like, okay, I need some medicine. Well, you can't take any money to buy. You don't have money, so you have to trade the potatoes. So you got to find somebody who wants potatoes and has medicine, right? Like you see how this works. So currency was invented to help us solve that problem. But unlike potatoes, gold and silver is always valuable, right? That's why currency is helpful. That's how wisdom is. Wisdom is always valuable. It is always valuable for getting you happiness. Because the Bible says, blessed is the man who finds wisdom. It is valuable, unlike money, in every single situation. We always, we're always puzzled about rich people who are miserable. It's because they don't have wisdom, right? Wisdom is the ultimate currency. So how do we get it? Right? That's the question. How do we get it? Hopefully our study, our whirlwind, that's what all of them are, hopefully by now it's convinced you that God is the source, we could call him the manufacturer of wisdom. And so, easy question class, if you're going to get wisdom, where do you go? To the internet? I tricked, right? To your doctor? I'm amazed. Okay, I should... All right, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> hey, the Proverbs say, even a fool is considered wise when he remains silent. Yeah. I still want to say it, though. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say it. We're going to keep going. In like four of you are going to ask me afterwards. Right? So, do, do you go to the internet? Do you go to a trusted friend? All right? Now, these places may have some wisdom. They, they do. 
but they aren't the original source, right? That's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should Google, no, he should go to God. He should go to God who gives generously to all. Okay, so go to God for wisdom, but like anything more specific on how we get wisdom? Like how else do we think about this? Well, here's the thing. As we read at the beginning, and as you know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9. In fact, it's 18 times that phrase is repeated in the Proverbs alone. It's repeated in the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, I think Jeremiah. We'll we'll throw Jeremiah in there. I'm not sure about that. Um, But it's in the Psalms and Ecclesiastes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not only that, Proverbs 2 verse 5 says that the fearing God is actually the end of wisdom. It's the goal. It's the beginning and the end. It's the A to Z. So if we want our starting point, if you want to be wise, here's where you begin. Fear God. Fear God. Okay? What does that mean? All right? That's another church word. I don't like church words. I like understanding words. Right? So let's, let's see if we can understand, because the Bible uses that in a couple ways. In one sense in the Bible, fear means being afraid of God. Like terror. It means to tremble, to stand in fear, in dread, in awe of him. And that can be good. The man who fears God throws himself on the ground before him. He doesn't challenge him. He doesn't talk back to him. He doesn't argue with him about his law or his judgments or his decisions or his wisdom. And he certainly doesn't pretend to be holy. That would be ridiculous, right? Constantly see people in the Bible when they have any sort of encounter with God, they're like trying to get their shoes off. They're trying to get under the dirt, right? Isaiah says, woe is me. I am unclean. I'm not like you. It's fear. The man who fears God recognizes himself as a sinner. And as God is an awesome judge, he has thunderous fury and wrath towards sin. And so if this, this man, if he has fear of God, if he's wise, he will run to safety. And the only place, the only place that is safe, the only place that a sinner can go to and be safe from the wrath of God is Jesus. The perfect hiding place in the hurricane of God's wrath. Because Jesus has bore the wrath of God. And after he bore it, he came back to life. Never to bear it again. So hiding in Jesus is for those who are afraid of the wrath of God. And that is wise. But there's another sense in which fearing God, and this is probably the primary sense, speaks of like reverence, right? A joyful reverence that leads to happy obedience. If you've been reading Deuteronomy with us on the CBR schedule, you may have picked up on this, right? This is that fearing God is closely connected to obeying God's law. That makes sense, right? Especially if you understand the, like the afraid component. The, the, uh, verse Deuteronomy ten twelve says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, right? To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul. All right, those who fear God walk in his ways. 
When we don't walk in his ways, we, we're not a, we don't fear him. We're, mo- I mean, we're mocking him. I don't care what you said. You don't know what's best for my marriage. What do you know? I know what's best, right? Every time that we choose sin, we're mocking God. The Bible says, God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. But those who fear God walk in his ways. They revere him. They enjoy him. And since they enjoy him, they learn to love what he loves. My daughter Addie, I love her, all right? And she is girly, girly. And she's interested in these things that I do not understand, right? She is really into, she likes watching these aerialists that like twist up in the ribbons and like fly around. And she could watch it like for forever. I could watch it for like 45 seconds. And I'm like, I need to fix that, <laughs> right? And, but, but I love her. And so I'm interested in what she's interested in. And I love what she loves. It is so much more true for God who has pure desires and pure hatred, pure hatreds. We learn to disapprove of what he disapproves, and it's because of reverence. Proverbs eight thirteen says, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Right? We learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Now, do you see how this is starting to maybe fit together? I don't know if I've been clear, but I hope, I hope the Lord's helping. Let's see if we can try to bring some of this together. Wisdom begins and ends with a proper orientation to God. Right? It, 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 it is totally dependent upon having a right relationship with God. Because that's where you get wisdom. And as we fear God, we gain wisdom as we embrace his values. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. And so in wisdom, we will strive to keep in step or keep in sync with the rhythms of his values and how he has made his world. And we can make this really practical. If wisdom begins with all, if wisdom, if the beginning of wisdom is fearing God, so if, if wisdom begins with awe and reverence of God, how in the world can we expect to find happiness in sin? Right? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit. If God hates sin, and if I fear God, how would I pursue sin to make me happy? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or here's another way to think about it. Let's go with two practical applications here. Can we really expect to gain wisdom if we neglect God? If we neglect communion with God, can we really expect wisdom? Y'all, I have the joy of talking with people about their problems. I love it because God is so sufficient for every human problem. And so all, as a counselor, I'm just like, God has solutions to your problems. I don't have them. The Bible does, right? So let's think about that together. But so, so I talk to people about the problems that they're facing, and, and that's the only reason people, you know, we all have problems. So you talk, you talk with someone about a problem, and in every single counseling case that I've ever had, I ask people about their relationship with the Lord. I, I'll, I'll ask them. I'll ask them questions, you know, about the Bible reading and about prayer. Or I'll ask them, you know, how has your intimacy with the Lord been affected? How has it affected how you think about your problem? And I am absolutely astounded by how many people honestly tell me, you know what, I haven't prayed about this. Or, 
or I, I just haven't read the Bible recently. I just can't focus. I mean, and, 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 and I understand that because I've been there in my life before quite a few times. So I understand that. But when we have clarity, can we not say, how in the world do we expect to find wisdom to navigate difficult circumstances if we, like, neglect God? It doesn't make sense. He is the source of wisdom. You wonder why you don't have wisdom? You haven't asked. That's what James says. We can't neglect that. Okay, I'd love to linger here, but we need to turn to Jesus. If you've been to a handful of these sermons, you can anticipate the pattern. I try to surprise you sometimes, but you can anticipate the pattern now. Everything in the Bible seems to begin, everything in the Bible seems to end with Jesus. It's always always talking about Jesus, always going to Jesus. No apologies there. And sure enough, wisdom is no different. The Bible presents Jesus as the fulfillment of wisdom. Now, this can get a little complicated. I was scratching my head on this this week, and there's various aspects we could explore of how Jesus fulfills wisdom, but I'm going to pick one, and I think I picked the most simple one. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at one big aspect of how Jesus is the end of wisdom, the culmination. Look down at... uh, Verse 21. This is one of the times you just want to read like the whole chapter and like the chapter before, but I can't do that. Okay. Uh, Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, I can't preach a whole sermon on these verses. I'm not going to do that. Verse 21, it shows us no human, no matter how hard he tries, no matter how smart he is, even if he doesn't molest children, can gain wisdom, can gain the wisdom of God with only human resources. In other words, the world cannot know God through human wisdom. Case point, Tower of Babel, right? But then in verse 24, Paul also tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He, he is the wisdom of God. So think about how this works. No human can know God's wisdom until Jesus comes as a human, right? And as he came, we can now know God. Because we can know Jesus. Jesus becomes the way. And he becomes the way to who? To God. And God is the source of wisdom. So Jesus is the source. He's the way to God. He's the way to get wisdom. Now, if you can hold that thought, Jesus is the way to wisdom. If we we were to keep reading in chapter 2, verse 7, we would also see that Paul describes not only Jesus, but the gospel itself as the wisdom of God. Right? That makes sense. Jesus and gospel, pretty close, you know, hand in hand. 
But there's this wisdom that has existed before creation that has been kept hidden. Hidden until it is revealed in the gospel. Hidden until it is revealed in Christ. And so think of how all this converges together. We've seen, friends, that wisdom is the way to life. The way to a full and happy life. And this wisdom is only available in relationship with God, who is the source of all wisdom. But we as humans have rejected God's wisdom and no longer have access to that life, to that wisdom with God. And it is until Christ comes. He is the fulfillment of wisdom and he is the way to God. He is the way to get wisdom. He is the way to get life. And all this comes through the gospel, which itself is described as the mysterious wisdom of God. So friends, one big takeaway for you is this. It is only in the gospel that we get access to God and to the knowledge that we need to know how to live. And so the more, think carefully about this, the more that we align ourselves to the patterns and the rhythms of the wisdom of God, the more we will flourish. And is there anywhere that this could be more true than with the gospel itself? I mean, just think about this. The more that we apply the key truths of the gospel to our everyday lives, the more we become wiser than Solomon. Let me say that again. The more you apply the key truths of the gospel to our everyday lives, the more you become wiser than Solomon. That is, when we believe and act like we believe the basic tenets of the gospel, we will find both moral and practical wisdom for life. You might think, what does that mean? Like, what, what are the basics of the gospel? How do I apply the gospel? Well, here's the gospel. Let me tell you. You can be a minute late, right? The gospel is that God is glorious beyond all imagination. And he is worthy to be obeyed. You think that's practical? right? He's glorious. But we are sinful, and so we're under the wrath of God. But Christ has made a sacrifice for sin. And as you and I turn from our sin and run to Jesus, we find acceptance. And in that acceptance, we can believe the Father loves us with the same intensity that he loves the Son. Those five gospel truths have 10,000 applications live in them. As we believe and live according to these truths, we will be wise and find life, even eternal life. Let me, let me just close with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Father, we make our boast in you. Help us live accordingly. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.